Well, um, this morning I want us to go kind of through a long passage in Romans chapter number 5. And then uh, this afternoon we'll look at Romans chapter number 6. And it's all Paul building an argument um, so that we can understand, you know, where do we live from? So everybody, and, and you know, my assumption is that all of us here, we're all in one family. But in the scripture, he says everybody's in part of two families. And we break ourselves down into um, nationality, right? I mean, that's kind of the main race, uh, gender. What are some other ways we break ourselves down in, um, you know, national heritage, you know. So I see Joe's, he's... Uh, He's from the subcontinent, right? Asian, South Asia, and, uh, you know, you might think someone's, you know, some of us, our heritage is, mine is Armenian and French-Canadian, and, you know, some are European descent, and, you know, but this this is how Paul breaks it down. He said, you're in Adam or you're in Christ. It's that simple. Isn't that kind of an amazing thought? You know, we have all of these false uh, identities, but he says, listen, everybody's either in Adam or they're in Christ. And it's important that we know who we're in. Um, And he talks in this part of the passage about what reigns over you. Does Adam reign over you or does Jesus reign over you? Does sin reign over you or does salvation reign over you? Does death reign over you or does life reign over you? Um, And and really, when he talks about sin in Romans chapter number 5, he's really not talking about individual sins, but he's talking about the um, sin that we inherited from Adam and the justification and the life that we inherit or receive from Jesus Christ. Let's read verse number 12 uh, through 21, and then uh, we'll just kind of go back through it. He says, wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. And for until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over them that had not sinned, after the similitude of Adam's transgression, who is the figure of him that was to come. But not as the offense, so also is the free gift. For if through the offense of one many be dead, much more the grace of God and the gift of grace, which is by one man, Jesus Christ, hath abounded unto many. And not as it was by one that sinned, so is the gift. For by the judgment was by one to condemnation, but the free gift is of many offenses unto justification. For if by one man's offense death reigned by one, much more they which receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as by the offense of one, judgment came upon all men to condemnation. Even so, by the righteousness of one, the free gift came upon all men unto justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners... So by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. Moreover, the law entered the the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. 
that as sin hath reigned unto death, even so might grace reign through righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. Father, I just pray that in the next few minutes that you would just help us to, to, to be men who want grace to reign. To leave behind the life of sin and death. The place where you reign in our hearts. Lord, speak through your servant. Guide me what you want to say and to your people, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So he starts off and he says, Therefore, and just as, though, just as through one man sin entered in the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all sin. So who's he talking about? Huh? Yeah, but who's he talking about specifically? Who started this problem? Adam, right? So how come your children are born sinners? Oh, my children are not born sinners. Have you ever been amazed, especially when your kids are little, how they can sin? I remember one time Ryan and Megan, uh, they're three years apart, and, and Megan was always shy and didn't talk much. And I saw Ryan do something, and I did something a parent should never do. I asked them, I said, who did it? Right? I mean, never put your kids in a place they have to lie. They're going to get in enough trouble by themselves. So you're sitting there, and I'm going, who did it? And he goes, oh, May May did it. And I'm like, you little rascal. May May didn't do nothing. May May can't even talk to defend herself. She's looking there like, oh, I didn't do it. <laughs> now, what would possess a kid to do something like that? He inherited it from his mother. Is that true? He inherited it from his father, who inherited it from his father, who inherited it from his father, who inherited it from his father, all the way back to Adam. He inherited this sinful nature. You know, and, and Paul, last night we looked at it, we were saved by his life. You know, we who were born under the wrath of God because of sin have by faith been both forgiven and given the life of Jesus through faith in his perfect sacrifice. On the contrary, sin came to all through Adam. I mean, you think about it. Adam was born in a perfect environment. We, we don't live in a perfect environment, do we? We live in a sin-cursed world. Can you imagine? And you t- So you think, you know, uh, you live, if there was a, a perfect environment, then men wouldn't sin. But actually, it's not true. He sinned. He was in a perfect, sinless environment. It wasn't the sum total of all of Adam's sins that, that he's, Paul's talking about, but sin singular that started the whole problem. And sometimes you'll see here in Romans, he talks about sin in the singular, and he talks about sins, which is the manifestation of the singular problem. Why, why do we all have sins? Because we, have, we had sin, and sin was at the core of who we were in Adam. And so sin began to reign over and passed to all of his descendants. You know, let me ask you this, kind of make you think. When does somebody become guilty of, of sin? When they commit their first sin? 
I mean, when did, when did you become a sinner? When you, were, when you committed your first sin, when you spoke your first lie? You became a sinner. <laughs> I mean, you think about it, it's going to sound strange. But you were a sinner when you were born. Now, the reason this is important is that Paul is going to talk to us about grace in the same kind of respect. And if we don't understand that the sin part, we won't accept the, the grace part. You know, it's hard because we sit there and go, yeah, but that's not fair. It really isn't about fair. It's just about the reality of how we inherit. We, you know, some people are born with blonde hair, and some people are born with dark hair, and some people are, well, I wasn't born with gray hair, but, you know, I'm glad to have some hair, right? You know, I mean, I don't even care anymore. It's falling out, and pretty soon I'm just going to shave it, you know? Um, uh, I, I, you know, you don't think about it as fair. You think it's part of your inheritance. And what we inherited in Adam was sin. And we were born guilty. Um, it was something, it's what is called uh, uh, original sin. And death is universal because sin is universal. If you think about it, death is universal because sin is universal. And death has a way of making us think about it. You know, every time I do a funeral, I think about life in a different way, don't you? Um, it makes us think of our own mortality. I mean, you think about that word mortality. Why do they call us humans mortals? <laughs> right? Because uh, we're subject to death. That's what mortal means. Someone who's subject to death. So one person's deed has great effect on multitudes. And that's something that each one of us kind of needs to stop and think about this morning before we go on. Your deeds have the effect or have the ability to affect multitudes. Satan comes and he tempts us and you think, yeah, but the temptation's mine and the sin is mine. But do you realize that that one choice has the power to affect a multitude? Adam and Eve, when they disobeyed God, weren't thinking about what the effect would be. And I think that most of the time people, you know, guys get involved with a, a woman other than their wife or they get involved in pornography and they think, oh, it just affects me. It doesn't affect anybody else. But is that true? No, it's never true. And so we need to stop and be sober and to realize that sin has the power to affect a multitude. Sin is universal to the human race. Uh, and then we compound the problem with our own sins. We were born sinners, and then we compound the problem with our own sinners. Uh, it's sin is something that comes natural to us. We see it when we raise our children. You say, that, who taught them how to do that? Right? I mean, you just see all kinds of things in their lives. The parent's job isn't going around teaching them to sin. The parent's job is trying to modify the behavior. You're sitting there constantly trying to deal with issues, right? Isn't that what it is? It's you're, you go from one issue to another, especially if your kids are little, you know. You're just they're constantly trying to modify their behavior, right? Uh, or, or have you given up? <laughs> Grandparents, I modify my grandson's behavior. I spoil them to death. And his father... Uh, 
we were all in Singapore together, you know, and I took him to the zoo, the night zoo, got him ice cream, got him all jacked up, gave him Coca-Cola. It was great. Great. Father's like, he doesn't need that. I'm like, it's not about what he needs. (laughs) And he's like, you're spoiling him. I go, thank you. (laughs) Yeah, he's always glad to see you sleep. (laughs) Uh, Now, Mine, mine is fairly innocent. Actually, it's revenge. But um, <laughs> sin, sin comes natural. You know, I see him. I'm like, he was doing something in the in the in the car, and I said, Austin, I can't help you there. No one can save you from your father right now. Grandpa cannot bail you out of this, baby. But but it comes natural to. Us, but listen, I want you to stop and be sober and realize your sin doesn't just affect you, it affects a multitude. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed where there is no law. So, why do we develop laws? One of the questions on Family Feud was about traffic, everyone knew the answers to that one, which was curious. Right? I mean, we had answers. I thought there were some good answers that weren't even on there. Like, you know, some of you were worried about going to jail. I thought, like, your guilty conscience is speaking out here. Uh, yeah, going to jails. I like the one slow down. Uh, isn't that what you do every time a policeman pulls up behind you and you haven't been watching? You all of a sudden you look and there's a policeman behind you. Don't you slow down immediately? You don't even know. Maybe you're going the speed limit and you slow down. Right? The guilty conscience. Well, now, what is the purpose of the law? is to identify dangerous and destructive behaviors. Sometimes people look at at the law of God and they say, oh, God's just trying to keep us from having a good time. I don't want to follow Jesus because I want to have a good time. But that's just silliness, isn't it? Is there a single law that God has for us, a moral law that is there to keep us from having a good time? Or are they all there to keep us from destroying ourselves? I mean, it helps you to understand it. The law isn't there to keep us from having a, a good time. The law is there to keep us from destroying ourselves with destructive behavior. And then he, he goes on here. But before God gave the law to Moses on Mount Sinai, did sin exist in the world? Of course it did. Things, we can, things can be wrong without a law telling you it's illegal. You can be found guilty of a law but you can't be found guilty of a law that isn't in effect. Now, that should be a good thing, right? A policeman can't pull you over. There, there may be, a, if there was no speed limits, you might be able to deduce that it might not be healthy to go 90 miles an hour in a residential zone, um, right? You, you might be able to deduce that unless you were 17. And you might think that was normal behavior. Because I have 17, I remember my kids when they were that aged. I'm like, you know, you don't have to go as fast as a car can go. Um, I was in Texas recently in the speed limit, and part of Texas was 80 miles an hour. I was like, does anybody really need to go that fast? But uh, then I caught myself driving 85 because I thought no one would pull me over if I was only going that far. None of you do that kind of stuff? Speed limit 70, you go 75 because you think they won't pull you over for 75. Speed limit 75, you go 
you know, 79, 80, you go, why? Because we have a sinful nature that always rebels against the law. Do we need to go 83 instead of 80? Do we need to go 80? No. You know, it's three miles an hour going to change our lives in any way meaningful. No. But because we have a sin nature, we rebel against law. But here's the deal is that you can't have a, there's no penalty imposed if there's no law. Now look at the next phrase here. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses. So even though there was no law, death reigned. And even those who had not sinned according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam, who was a type of him who was to come. And so you understand who the type is, right? He's talking about the comparison between the first Adam and the second Adam. And the second Adam is Jesus Christ. And he's building an argument. He said, death reigned over all men prior to the law being given. Death reigned because sin was inactive in all mankind prior to there ever being a law. So sin always results in death. Sin results in death, guilt, and condemnation. The law came in later, but prior to that, it was there. Adam was a type of Jesus who would come to undo the destruction of Adam's sin and the destruction that came upon mankind. Now, sin could not be reckoned to them, but they still died. And why then did they die? Because they sinned in Adam. You know, I mean, people ask me sometimes, well, what about the people who've never heard the gospel? They sinned in Adam. They've all sinned. Everybody has sinned. Now, he goes on. I want to keep going. And the next phrase is, but the free gift is not like the offense. The sin of Adam brought death. It brought death to all. By contrast, the gift of God brought life to many. And so you can see, sin, death. Jesus brings life. Now, if you think about it, left to ourselves, the cause is hopeless. But Jesus brings life. Hope. And then he goes on and he says, And for if by one man's offense many died. Offense or transgressions is from parapatoma, which has the meaning of strain from the path. He's saying, you know, you stray from the path where you should not go. Adam and Eve had, I mean, I think this is interesting. They had one command. Israel, I mean, had the Ten Commandments, but had hundreds of, of laws. And you think, you know, in America, how many laws do we have to try and control behavior? Thousands, right, at least. Does it work? Law can try to to modify the behavior of some because of the fear of consequences, right? But it can never transform the heart of a man. We can never, anytime we go to look to the law to modify or to transform man, we're hopeless, right? I mean, sometimes in Christianity, we try to use laws to change behavior, but laws can do what? They produce death. They produce death, guilt, condemnation, death. But he's trying to get us to come to the place where we no longer look to the law for the transformed life, but we look to Jesus for the transformed life. He said it's completely different here. Um, 
The judgment followed one sin and it brought condemnation, but the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification. Now that should make us happy because one, one, one act of sin brought guilt and condemnation upon us all, and then there was a multitude of offenses, and Jesus had one gift. And by the one gift, satisfied all of the demands. And he says here, but for if by one man's offense many died, then much more the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to end... To, abounded to many. I mean, think about it. That's some kind of gift. Apart from works, apart from the law, apart from ordinances, apart from worthiness. This is something that's just hard for us because we strive to be worthy. But he's saying, apart from any worthiness and out of, out of the gift of righteousness from God. I mean, we are a people who are redeemed because of one gift. Christ's one act of salvation has immeasurably greater impact than Adam's one act of damnation. Now, not only is it greater, here, look at this. Christ is much more powerful to save than Adam was to destroy. And so our life mission really is not about Adam and his sin. It's about Christ and his power to save it's greater than the one original sin of Adam that brought death. It's greater than all the accumulated sins that men have ever or will ever commit. And then the next phrase, and he goes, and the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. Adam's sin and its consequences were passed on to us all without exception, but Christ's obedience and righteousness is passed on to all who believe in him. Adam's one sin was not only sin. It was not the only sin that Christ died for. Adam's having become a sinner sinned many more times before he died. Christ died for all the sins of all who believe. If you think about it, everything we needed, we have in Christ through that one sacrifice. And for the judgment which came from one offense resulted in condemnation. And so the contrast again. One sin by one man at one time brought God's judgment and its resulting condemnation. And God's judgment on Adam and his descendants resulted from but one transgression. God's holiness made it impossible for even one sin to pass unjudged and uncondemned. And so when he came and he judged, he judged all of sin. And for if by one man's offense death, death reigned through the one. And so let me ask you, what reigns in your life? To reign is to have power or dominion. Neither Adam or Eve sinned because they wanted to die. They sinned because they believed the lie they could become like God. You know, they ate out of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And you think, all of the time that they'd spent with the Lord, God before that, they had never known evil. And how, what a blessing it's going to be when we're with Christ and we know evil no more. I mean, we weren't designed for an evil world. It wasn't part of the, the, the makeup. He designed us for a perfect environment. Sin produced death so that death uh, 
ruled over man. I mean, think about it. The wrong tree. In the garden, there were two trees that he talks about. I mean, actually, there was a multitude of trees, fruit trees that they were able to eat from. What was the other tree, though, that is pointed out in in Genesis? Tree of life. Which tree were we allowed to eat from? The tree of life. Until sin. Have you ever thought about this? When we eat out out of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, we know both good and evil. Now, when you're an unbeliever, where do you spend most of your time? On the evil side of the tree. But do you ever known an unbeliever who can be a pretty good person in the sense that they seem like good people? You You meet some Mormon people, you meet some Jehovah's Witnesses, and they seem like pretty good people. Why? Because they've modified their behavior so they spend more time on the good side of the tree than the evil side of the tree. Because it's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. What happens sometimes in Christianity is we get someone who comes to the Lord and they're born again and we see all of these behaviors that that typify typify the fruit of the evil side of the tree and so we try to move them from the evil side of the tree over to the good side of the tree. Which makes sense, doesn't it? Are you with me? But it's the wrong tree. It's the wrong tree. And so he's saying, listen, the tree that you and I were designed to live out of was the tree of life, which is the life of God. Because as long as we're living the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, all we're going to have is guilt, condemnation, and death. And so he continues on and he says, and much more... Those who receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. The effects of sin were great, but the effects of Jesus' gift of grace were far superior. In Christ, we have an abundance of grace. Now, he's introducing the whole concept of an abundance of grace because in Romans chapter 6, he's going to challenge us with, with, uh, with some heavy things. He wants us to be thinking about it. I mean, what's the force that reigns in your life? Where do you live? He's saying, what's reigning over you? And sometimes we need to look at what's the fruit. Is there just death? Because if there's death that reigns, if there's death in our relationships, then we're eating out of the wrong tree. We're still living out of the wrong tree. 1 Corinthians 15.22 says, uh, as, For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. And then he continues and he says, Therefore, as through one man's offense, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation. And he's just laying it out point by point. Adam resulted in guilt, condemnation, and death. And Christ results in life. And then he tells us there's an abundance of, of grace in Jesus Christ. How much grace do you need? He's saying there's there's an abundance there. And even so, through one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. So salvation is available to all who exercise faith in Jesus Christ. So, do you have trouble dealing with this idea of what it means to be in Adam and in Christ. <laughs> so I take this, this beautiful Berean pin. And these are good pins. I'm, most church pins are pretty bad. 
You know, you write with them one time before you fill out the information card. They're broken. I like this. This is a good one. I'm going to keep this one. So I take the pen and I put it in my Bible. And the Bible is now on the, what do you call this? It's not really a pulpit, but podium. So the Bible's on the podium. Where's the pen? And it's on the podium, right? And if I take the Bible and I put the Bible over here on the platform, where's the pen? On the platform. And so what happens to the Bible happens to the... Because the pen's in the Bible. It's kind of a weak illustration, but it's the best one I could think of. To explain to us what happens because we're in Adam. Because we're in Adam, what happens to Adam happens to this. But when you're born again and you enter into Jesus Christ and you're in Jesus Christ, the thing, everything that happens to Jesus happens to you. So when Jesus went to the cross, who went to the cross? And when Jesus went to the grave, who went to the grave? And when Jesus rose again, who rose again? And when Jesus ascended into heaven, he said, we ascended. He said that we even now are seated at the right hand of the Father in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And so I know it's a hard thing to to grab a hold of, but he's trying to get us to understand that there's been this great transaction that has taken place because we're no longer in Adam. You can't be both in Adam and in Jesus Christ at the same time. You're either in Adam or you're in Jesus Christ. He says, for by, as, for as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. So also by one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. And here it tells us the power of choice. I mean, if you think about it, the choices that you and I make have great power over many. And so what are we going to do? Are we going to be men who choose to disobey or men who choose to obey? And how are we going to live out that commitment? Because when we choose to disobey and when we choose to rebel and we choose to live for self, it compounds and it affects a multitude. But when we choose to obey, many can be made to experience righteousness. You know, we, we have it here. First, Adam gets sin, guilt, condemnation, death. Second, Adam, forgiveness and righteousness. Where are we living? The guilt of Adam's disobedience was imputed to all of his descendants. Christ's obedience causes those who believe in him to be made righteous in the sight of God. What one man does has great power to affect all of humanity. Then he continues on and he says, and moreover the law entered that the offense might abound. I think there's a great deal of confusion about what the purpose of the law is. Is the purpose of the law to make us righteous? So why do we use the law to make people righteous or to judge or to evaluate righteousness? He's saying, listen, you got to forget the law, the, the, the law in the sense of making a man righteous. The purpose of the law was to show us that we were guilty. 
The law entered that the offense might abound. The law was never given to bring salvation. The purpose of the law was to reveal our true condition as sinners and bring us to the place of brokenness. Yesterday, I talked to you a little bit about unconditional surrender. But I think we try to negotiate with God and we come and say, well, okay, I'm a sinner, but, but, and we try to negotiate with God. But what he wants us to do is come to the place of absolute brokenness. And so every attempt to live under the law will bring you to the place where I'm an absolute and unconditional failure. Is that a bad thing? No, because that's not where we live. That was the purpose of the law. Look, what does 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 9 and 10 say? It says, knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous person, but for the lawless and the insubordinate, for the ungodly and for sinners, for the unholy and for the profane, for murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers, for manslayers, for fornicators, for sodomites, for kidnappers, for liars, for perjurers, and if there is any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine. So what's the purpose of the law? To show men their exceeding sinfulness, we see later. But where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. You see, the purpose of the law is to show people their need for grace. So where do we live? It shows our sinfulness, our need for his grace. You're only using the law correctly when it's being used to reveal to the sinner his sinfulness. You're only using the law when it's, for its true purpose when it drives us to realize our need for his grace. And God's grace is abundant. He says, where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. See, friends, we're never going to really appreciate the grace of God until we see our sinfulness apart from Christ. I know some people, they don't, they don't want to talk about the grace of God. They think it's a dangerous thing. But until you understand how much of a sinner you were without any hope, desperate, uh, a complete and utter failure, then you realize your need for the grace of God. And we're never going to appreciate the grace of God until we understand that apart from it, all we were was sinners. He said there is an abundance of grace. The Greek word translated abounded is perisueo, which means to overflow, to have more than enough. Yesterday, <coughs> we looked into Ephesians and we're talking about God is rich in mercy because of his great love toward us. Now, aren't you guys glad that God's rich in mercy? I mean, what, how do you define rich? How do you define rich? I mean, I kind of define rich as anybody who doesn't have to think about what they spend. Right? I mean, you got so much money, it just doesn't matter. Right? I mean, to me, that's, that's rich. Um, here's the deal. God is rich in mercy. So wherever we are, wherever our failures are, wherever we might have come to in life, God is rich in mercy. And in Romans, he says, and he abounds in grace towards us. 
He has an unlimited, unmerited favor as a resource available to us. The law caused sin to increase more and more, but grace did more than just keep pace with our sin. Grace overflows to us. See, we're never at the point where maybe God has come to the point where he's fed up with us and he's decided to cast us away. He says he abounds. For where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. Grace comes at the moment of our need. It's not withheld because of sin, but it serves its purpose in our sinfulness. Grace is never reduced because of sin, but increases to ever meet our need. Your sin did not keep God's grace from flowing to you in abundance when you came to Christ, and it will not keep grace from you now. Paul was the great champion of grace because he was keenly aware of his sin. I propose to you that those who don't appreciate the grace of God are those who don't appreciate their own sinfulness, who try to stand in their righteousness apart from the righteousness that comes as a gift. The greater we see our own need, the greater we hold tightly to the grace of God. And then he tells us that grace empowers our obedience. I think that sometimes, you know, and people will ask me, uh, well, what about when you're raising your children? Until your children know Jesus Christ, you have to be Moses. Do you understand what I mean? I mean, they have to be under the law because they don't have the spirit of Christ. But once they have the spirit of Christ, they're no longer under Moses, they're under Christ. We have to teach our kids to learn to, to be obedient at, at uh, obedience, not out of fear of punishment, guilt, condemnation, and death, but to, fear, to realize that obedience is a reflection of grace. I think when you're running to school, that, that's hard, isn't it, Brother Abshai? Right? But you should be able to tell a distinct difference between those who know Christ and those who don't know Christ. Because grace empowers obedience. If we understand the grace of God... I, I, when I w was living under legalism, I always wanted to obey. I just never knew I had the power to obey. Because I was trying to move from one side of the tree, from the, tr the evil side of the tree to the good side of the tree, constantly in a battle. But, he, but when I discovered the grace of God, or I should say better than me discovering grace, when God opened my eyes in my utter failure to show me the grace of God, that it abounded, it showed me that I was trying to live out of the wrong tree. That the tree that we were to live from was the tree of life. And that life came to us in Jesus Christ. And because Jesus overwhelmed or overcame the sin of Adam, he said, by that one man's obedience, there is an abundance of grace. He's saying, listen, you've you got to quit living in that first Adam. You've got to live out of the second Adam. You've got to quit living out of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and live out of the tree of life, which is what? It's the, the life of Christ that's within us. Does it not overwhelm you to think that Jesus came and died on a cross to take care of the sin problem, to reconcile us, but that he came to give us and to save us by his life. 
so that his life in us could be an abundance of grace, so that faced with every challenge and every temptation, I can live a life of obedience because I'm empowered by grace. It should transform the way we, we think. Because as long as we live under the law, as long as we live out of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, we may have an assemblance or an appearance of obedience, but we're going to have no joy. And the fruit of the Spirit will be void in our life. He empowers our grace as God's life to us. Grace changes our view of God's law. When we live in grace, we realize that God's law is, <laughs> is not trying to keep us from having fun. If you were, if you were in, in Iraq and uh, you knew there were all these landmines and there was one person who knew all of the landmines were and you needed to go from point A to point B and cross that area, would you tell the person who knew where all the landmines are, would you say something to the effect of, hey, I don't want you telling me what to do and where to go. Well, would you? No, you'd be saying, hey, uh, listen, you know where the landmines are? Guide me. Do you realize that life is full of landmines? And Jesus knows where they are? And his purposes is not to keep you from having a good time. His purposes are to keep you from blowing yourself up. Have you ever seen a Christian who just got away from Jesus and didn't want Jesus telling them where the landmines were and life disintegrated in a moment? You see, that's really what it is. You see, our view changes. We see the law as God's guide to avoiding trouble. Someone says, I don't want you to impose your ways on me, and they're talking to God. His, he's failing to understand that God's directions are there to preserve life. I, it's like a sign that says, don't go that way, because that way will kill you. Go this way, and you'll live. From grace, we see God's commands through the backdrop of the cross. And when we look at the commands of God through the backdrop of the cross, we realize that all of his intentions are good. They're there to protect and preserve. And then the, the, the next phrase there, he says, so that as sin reigned in death. Now, sometimes when you look at grace of, the grace of God and how he forgives us and abounds to us, you might think, well, then sin doesn't matter. But sin does matter. He doesn't turn a blind eye to our sin or dismiss it as irrelevant. Sin does matter. Sin is terrible and it always produces death. And that's why he's trying to get us to deal with it once for all. God deals with sin by dying for it. And he said here that sin reigned in death. It ruled over all. It's like two kingdoms, two reigns. One is king sin. And where king sin reigns, all death is abounds. And is surrounding the people. But he's saying, listen, I want grace to reign. What's, what's ruling in your life? Is sin reigning in your life? Or is grace reigning in your life? And I guess the way to do it is, is there death? Are there secrets? 
Is there a lack of transparency? Sin makes big promises. King Sin tells us he's going to give us everything we've ever wanted, but all he can do is bring heartache, guilt, pain, condemnation, death. And when we reach the moment of despair, sin laughs at us and reaches out to snatch life from us. Sin always brings us to the place of bondage and death. But Jesus came to give us a better king. And he says in the next phrase, even so, grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life. Grace came to overthrow the kingdom of sin and darkness and bring in a new liberty and life. And so the condition of your life depends upon the character of the one who's reigning over you. King Grace rules in righteousness always for our good. He pours out his inexhaustible riches. Inexhaustible. It's a good word. It means you can never come to the end of it. You realize that God has the right to rule over your life. He purchased us with his own blood, the scripture says. He purchased us with his own blood so that he would have the right to rule and reign. And grace should have its kingdom in our hearts. He desires nothing but good for us. But make no mistake about it, Jesus expects to reign over us. Will you yield your heart to let him reign? You know, when you think about it, the the struggles that we have in life are really issues of who's going to reign in our life. You say, how do I know how much I'm supposed to give? You know, how how am I supposed to, how much do I give when there's so many financial troubles? Depends who reigns. Where do I spend my time? How do I decide if I'm going to be faithful in services and faithful in in serving? I guess it depends who reigns. Because what and who reigns in our life determines what we do with that life. And I want to encourage you this morning to ask yourself who's reigning in your life. Is there guilt, condemnation, and death in your relationships and in your life? Well, then I think you can assume that sin is reigning. Do you have to live with secrets? Or can you live transparently with your brothers? Because that tells us who and what is reigning. And he says, this all comes through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Jesus came to be life for us. And I hope that we come through this fifth chapter and we sit there and go, it's kind of confusing. Are we in Adam or and we in Christ and we all sin? But it's all for this one purpose, to know who reigns. And my prayer is that Jesus reigns through you. It isn't a path we follow. It isn't just a code that we keep, but it's a person that we're joined to, and his name is Jesus. And there's no other way. 
There aren't many ways to eternal life. There aren't many ways to peace. There aren't many ways to have joy. There's just one way, and his name is Jesus. Does Jesus rule in your life? What's ruling? What determines what you do, where you go, how you spend your money? You answer it. And that will tell you who's reigning. Someone is reigning over you. Sin or Jesus. The law came to reveal our sinfulness. Its purpose is completely satisfied when it has shown us that in and of ourselves, there's no hope. But once we have come to the place where the law has shown us our need for a savior, it serves it served its purpose and we live out of the life of Jesus Christ. The law shows us that we're completely helpless to save ourselves. The law's purpose was to show us how sinful we are and our desperate need for a savior. And I guess if you ever come to the place where you're not feeling very sinful or you're not feeling a need for the Savior is a better way to put it. You just need to think about what it would be like to live under the law. Because Jesus came to reign in righteousness over our lives. He wants to reign there. When we were slaves to sin, he redeemed us and he wants to rule in your life. Would you let Jesus be Lord over your life? Is Jesus Lord over your life? Do you manifest his character? Are you willing to give him the first fruits of your life? If he is Lord, then your every thought is, what are the desires of my sovereign? If he's Lord, there's no thought about whether I'm going to give or not give. If he's Lord... My life is for his purpose. My personal desires are submitted to the desires of my sovereign. So I hope that this morning you'll just take some time and you'll ask yourself, who's Lord? Is he reigning in my life? Because you have all that I know of made the testimony that you've moved from being in Adam to being in Christ. Now we just need to, to determine to let Christ rule and reign over our lives. Father, I thank you for the men and attendant, how attentive they are. And Lord, I know that uh, sometimes it's confusing when we go through these passages, I, I pray that you'd make the applications to their life powerful. Lord, if there's areas where you're not reigning in their life, I pray that they would yield those areas to you now. Lord, speak through your word to the hearts of your people. Convict us where we need convicting and admonish where we need admonishing. Encourage where we need encouraging to let you be Lord to let you stay on the throne and not take any place there. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.